TVO podcast, Gibisindanawa. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Sovereignty is the ability for a people to make their own decisions, to speak and be heard. For Indigenous people battling generations of colonization, we express our sovereignty in many different ways. Through living our lives as our authentic Indigenous selves, through our leadership, stories, and teachings, and through our art. Join us, Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk, on The Art of Sovereignty. In each episode, we explore the history and lives of First Nations artists who would not let others define them. They fought against the currents and used their work and their influence to break barriers and bring Indigenous perspectives to the forefront. Anin, Chris and Dishnikas, Mishisagig and Nishnabe and Dao. I'm Chris Beaver, and from TVO Podcasts, this is The Art of Sovereignty. The following podcast mentions residential schools. The Indian Residential School Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. Call 1-800-721-0066. Please take care while listening. I'm from Alderville, one of seven First Nations included in the Williams Treaties. One of seven First Nations who got swindled out of a big chunk of Southern Ontario, bordering the Greater Toronto Area and roughly three times the size of the GTA. While the seven First Nations may have accepted the terms and signed the treaties, for a pittance, it's not like they had much of a choice. They were also guaranteed the right to hunt and fish, but that ended when the government chose to reinterpret the treaties. So the seven First Nations filed a lawsuit against Canada that went on for 26 years before being offered a settlement. Financial compensation, reinstated harvesting rights, and an official apology for almost a century of injustices. Considering the value of the land in question, some of us consider this to be yet another pittance. This story is just one of many in a country built on broken treaties. For Indigenous peoples, the treaties were made in good faith and were meant to forge a relationship based on trust and compromise. Despite promises made, Indigenous peoples have lost control of most of their traditional territories. While at the same time, we've witnessed the rise of our current environmental crisis, climate change, habitat loss, and the decreasing of biodiversity. For many Indigenous people, these crises are one and the same. In this episode of The Art of Sovereignty, we're talking about one of the most acclaimed contemporary artists in Canada, Alex Janvier, who once said, it's time Indians become the landlords again. Today, Indigenous-controlled territories represent around 6% of the Canadian landmass, while 83% is Crown land. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, Crown land is the term used to describe land owned by the federal or provincial governments. Authority for control of these public lands rests with the Crown, hence their name. So technically... That means the British Crown, at least in writing, is seen as the highest authority in Canada when it comes to the land. And what is a nation without the control of the land? I guess you could say the British monarchy are our landlords. I caught up with Alex by video chat from his home studio office in Cold Lake, Alberta. I'm Alex John from Cold Lake First Nations. Alex is in his mid-80s with classical indigenous features. He wore a cowboy hat and a blue jacket over a red graphic t-shirt reading Homeland Security, with a picture of four indigenous hunters holding rifles. 
Alex has a dignified, measured, steady way about him with colorful undertones of passion, spirit, and rebelliousness. I once heard him described as a gadfly, which is a person who interferes with the status quo by posing novel, potentially upsetting questions, usually directed at authorities. I definitely picked up on this quality in Alex. When Alex says it's time Indians become the landlords again, it's a statement with rich, complex meaning. It has an intentional shock value. It provokes ideas of trading places in the landlord-tenant relationship. But there's more to it. The statement upends the colonial idea of land ownership altogether. Alex says the word for landlord in Dene means to be the boss of yourself, not the boss of the land. The indigenous relationship with the land is not about dominance and subjugation. It's about responsibility and reciprocity. Indigenous peoples couldn't even comprehend the idea of land ownership. Alex also said, we are the land and the land is us. This is more in keeping with the indigenous worldview, where being a landlord is about stewardship and protection. It's about having a voice at the table where decisions about land and resources are made. In Alex's view, environmental concerns and indigenous sovereignty are one and the same. In a prolific career spanning 50 years and counting, Alex Janvier is a key figure in the development of contemporary Indigenous art. He was among the first Indigenous artists to break through colonial barriers and get mainstream recognition. He's received numerous accolades and awards, at home and abroad. He's a member of the Order of Canada and the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts. Over a lifetime of painting, Alex has produced thousands of remarkable works of art as well as some of the most recognizable works of Indigenous art ever to come out of Canada. Today, Alex is 86 years old and still paints almost every single day. His body of work tells the story of Indigenous life. His story is one of unstoppable Indigenous excellence. He turned the adversities of his childhood into strengths. He overcame incredible odds to become one of the most important artists in Canada. Alex's style combines a unique blend of his Dene heritage and classical Western storytelling and aesthetics. Known for its vibrant colors and distinct, sinuous lines, Alex's artistic style is uniquely his own. It's so different from a lot of work by other Indigenous artists. That's Greg Hill, Audane's senior curator of Indigenous art at the National Gallery of Canada. I mean, his contemporaries, a lot of them were in what's known as the Woodland School, painters originating from areas around the Great Lakes Basin and that paint in a particular style or artists that were coming from the West Coast, a kind of general style to a lot of the work coming from there. But Alex is very, very different coming from Northern Alberta and uh, having gone to art school. And I think he he really just developed something quite unique that was a, a blend of a lot of his background, his influences, his upbringing and his experiences. Alex has lived most of his life in Cold Lake First Nation in Northern Alberta, the traditional territory of his Dene ancestors. His deep connection to the land and his cultural and spiritual values come through in his work. His work celebrates the land while thoughtfully reflecting on the colonial impositions on traditional Indigenous territories. In 1876, Cree and Dene leaders from the Cold Lake region in Alberta signed Treaty 6, giving the crown a landmass spanning entirely across the middle of Alberta and Saskatchewan. A quick note on treaties. Canada wouldn't have been possible without them. It's almost all treaty land. 
The treaty-making process evolved over 300 years while settler-indigenous relations broke down. We went from being treated like allies to unwanted stepchildren. Treaty 6 was signed under the newly established Indian Act, an oppressive set of laws that were used to control the lives of First Nations peoples. To quote directly from Treaty 6, with a view to show the satisfaction of Her Majesty with the behavior and good conduct of Her Indians, she hereby, through her commissioners, makes them a present of $12 for each man, woman, and child belonging to the bands here represented. No wonder Alex didn't feel like a landlord in his own land. Indigenous peoples were being coerced into land deals by a monarch who thought they belonged to them. They were promised farmland and equipment, schools, hunting and fishing rights, and medicine. There was a catch, however. Important items like medicine and even food rations would be held and distributed by an Indian agent. Let's take a moment to imagine what an Indian agent job posting might sound like in 1876. Do you have a passion for assimilating Indians? If so, this may be the job for you. Employer, the Government of Canada. Responsibility, to enforce the Indian Act. Location, Indian reserves all over Canada. Ideal candidate, white men. Duties include controlling the day-to-day -day lives of status Indians, enforcing the pass system by issuing permissions to leave or re-enter the reserve on a per-Indian basis, distributing food rations, taking children away to residential school, making sure Indians don't drink alcohol, enter pool halls, hire lawyers, form political groups, or thrive in any way. Most importantly, make sure the Indians aren't doing Indian things, like speaking their own language, having religious ceremonies, powwows, or potlatches. In 1902, Treaty 6 territory were still being surveyed, and unfortunately for the Dene of Cold Lake, they had been wrongfully accused of joining the Métis Rebellion. This was considered grounds for denying them the land they were entitled to in the treaty agreement. By the time Alex Janvier was born, all that was left of his people's once vast territory was a small area that he described as eight minutes by seven minutes. Alex was born on February 28, 1935. He is Dene Suleen in Salto, which is a member of the Anishinaabe Nation. His father, Harry, was the last in a long line of hereditary chiefs. His mother, Mary, was the matriarch of the family. Alex was one of 10 children. They had a traditional Dene upbringing, spent out in nature hunting, fishing, trapping, and foraging. It was a beautiful part of my life. We lived off the land and off the water for fish and used to snare rabbits and, and so on, you know, for food. This was a time when the government of Canada was actively working to assimilate indigenous peoples. But Alex's mother, Mary, was vigilant about preserving their culture. Our mother made sure that we hung on to our language. And it's nice. It's, it's a good language. It covers everything. It's a very knowledgeable language. If you go into the bush and start to uh, look at things, the language is in the land. Even on the word water, you know, 
that implies a lot of things. Everything that's in it, the way it looks, what, and how you drink it, and how you use it, and, and, and so on. And we were able to connect with the older generation who just love to tell their stories, you know, real stories of their life. Out in the wilderness, out in the lake, and living off the land. And their stories were just wonderful. Alex started making art very early in his life. I was an artist before I even started, I think. And then I did hard work on the, on the land itself after rain. It was a nice sheet of uh, level of space, and I used to just use a stick and do hard work on it, on the land itself. That became my slate. For Alex, this idyllic version of childhood was short-lived. In 1947, at age eight, he was taken away to the Blue Quills Indian Residential School in St. Paul, Alberta. That time, we were completely uh, isolated in the residential school. We couldn't speak our language, so I lived in confusion because I couldn't speak uh, English, and I didn't understand it anyway. And then uh, most of the nuns would talk in French, and so it was a double issue of not understanding either language. And so I was forced to, uh, to learn English by virtue of going to the classes and so on. And it took me a long time to really hang, get the hang of English. Fortunately, Alex discovered another way to express himself. Eventually, through the art, I was able to communicate my feelings to some reality. Art was his only refuge in an alien environment far from home and all of his loved ones. I didn't really understand English, and I didn't understand French, and I didn't understand the nuns, and I didn't understand the priests. In fact, I didn't even understand the religion they were forcing us to uh, contain ourselves in. Alex's artistic ability was surprisingly recognized, encouraged, and nurtured by his residential school teachers. The uh, school actually supplied the art supplies, the colors and the, the paper, manila paper, actually, that's, I remember. That's what they called it. But it had the, the ability to pick up the color really well. So I began to uh, experiment. The best part of Friday we were given at least three hours of hard work. And that was the time when I was freed from the uh, residential school uh, rigidity, uh, rules and regulations. I became, for that moment's uh, hours, was completely free. And that's when I decided to express myself through the art. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the images of residential school, the kind of propaganda images they have of bringing the wild Indians in, their indigenous dress and long hair, photo one and then photo two is them in the school uniforms with their haircut. So it's, it's kind of promoting the ideas of how they're civilizing the Indians. And I think uh, schools were eager to, to show these kinds of ideas of 
progress in civilization and supported Alex in his in developing his artistic talents, which was great for Alex. And that's something that he was able to use to hang on to hang on to culture, right? to hang on to that that sense of self and actually and to flourish. Some of your uh, earliest commissions as a teenager were by the church. Yeah. Like Our Lady of the Teepee or mm-hmm. St. Joseph the Carpenter. Yeah. As a young indigenous artist in an oppressive colonial system, what did it mean to you to be doing those paintings? Well, it meant uh, I was being indoctrinated very well in the church system. But uh, what I brought into the paintings was uh, I cleverly uh, went around the bend by uh, using native regalia and so on on the Virgin and and the baby uh, papoose uh, style, you know. What were you up against? Everything. Against the whole institution against the church, against uh, the Department of Indian Affairs, and, and in general, uh, the attitude of the, the great white race. Uh, I didn't have too many options other than what the, uh, the church wanted and what the government of Canada wanted from me to become. In 1956, when Alex was 21, he started studying to become a priest in St. Laurent, Manitoba. However, he left after four months, realizing that the priesthood was not for him. In that same year, he began formal art studies at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology and Art in Calgary, now known as Alberta University of the Arts. But that wasn't his first choice of art school. Well, the Indian agents uh, decided that I should go to art school in Calgary. He told me that uh, the art college in Ontario was too high bracket for me. You know, I would never make it, you know. And uh, the, the London, England, uh, they accepted me there too, but they wouldn't give me a passport. <laughs> Government of Canada wouldn't give me a passport because I was not Canadian. I was a native, you know. And only uh, legal Canadians would get a passport. And I was not considered legal. So I bypassed those two, and uh, I was plugged right into the system of the art school in Calgary. They had a guy spying on me all the time. He would show up every month or every second month to go and check up on me, sent by the, the government of Canada, you know, just to see if I was uh, being... Uh, educated or not, you know, and how well I was doing. But he he got curious because a couple of my teachers really spoke well for me. So uh, it uh, created uh, some environment of concern. Despite everything he had to overcome, Alex excelled in art school. They were trying to uh, educate me in the art world and... (laughs) I was educating the art, the the teachers. <laughs> it sounds funny, but that's the way it was. You know, they were watching every little move I made because for them, it's, it was fresh. 
to learn something uh, from the native side. They thought all natives uh, were uh, not too smart, but I, I showed some uh, ability. Alex has a strong belief in himself, and that has carried him through, you know, his experiences uh, in residential school. You know, and he, he, he suffered uh, a, a lot of loss, a lot of attacks on culture, some loss of language, uh, separation from family. He was able to grow his creative side in residential school. It was, his talent was recognized and promoted. In 1960, Alex graduated with honors, becoming the first Indigenous person in Canada to graduate from an art school. Indigenous peoples in Canada, for the large part, have had to adapt to a very rapid change, taking a long, a long-term view of the history of Indigenous peoples in these lands. You know, going back thousands of years, it's, it's only in the last 350 that there's been exposure to Western culture through colonialism and a kind of and a real enforced change and a need to change and adopted change. And I think Alex is an interesting example of a first generation of, of artists who went to art school and learned about Western art history and really sought to name their place within that, to go to school and, and uh, to have that, that kind of accreditation uh, to take with them as well, to demand respect from art institutions and always uh, hanging on to the idea of being a Dene Salin person and that that was obviously to him, you know, always part of, of his artwork and his, his perspective and his view and what comes through in his work. In 1967, Alex was asked by the Department of Indian Affairs to be an advisor for the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo 67 in Montreal. He was also commissioned to do a mural, which he called the Unpredictable East. It was your first public mural, and the Department of Indian Affairs renamed it Beaver Crossing Indian Colors. Mm -hmm. Why did they do that? They uh, give me a heck for uh, not following uh, grievance and so on. I didn't even agree with anything, and yet they, they said, uh, you know, we're in agreement. But uh, they, they had to follow their own idea because uh, they were going to expose them to the Department of Indian Affairs to the world. And so they had to be very careful how they did that, how they presented themselves uh, as a department which uh, looked after the interests of the natives of Canada. Right, so they exercised quite a bit of control. Yeah. I was not able to be invited to <laughs> to Expo, <laughs> although I had a lot to do with it. In 1993, Alex was commissioned by the Canadian Museum of Civilization, which is now known as the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. He created one of his most famous works, Morning Star, painted on the circular ceiling of the museum's open stairwell. Yeah, 
and we were following uh, the head man. He was describing everything that what was intended to happen in that building. And then after everything was over, I, I walked with them throughout the whole building. And uh, the head guy turned to me and says, which wall do you want? And all I did is I made it, I pointed up in the air. I remember when I got there uh, to do the, the ceiling, chief commando from the north of Ottawa came visit me and uh, gave me permission to, to go ahead and do some hard work in his territory. And so I appeased the native uh, ownership uh, that way, along with uh, what the government had in mind. So I was uh, very careful how I did a lot of things like that. I always go back to the elders and and find out what position I could take. And this is the way it was in those days. Around that time, Alex had been working as a translator for local land claim hearings. He heard many people sharing about how they had sustained themselves on the land. This had him thinking about the toll that colonization had taken on his ancestral territory and by extension, his people. This influenced his vision for Morningstar, which honors traditional Dene hunters and trappers who had used the Morningstar as their guiding light. It's a circular painting depicting a visual narrative of our past, present, and potential future in four quadrants. Before Europeans arrived, the weakening of indigenous cultures, the struggle for cultural survival, and healing and reconciliation. Morningstar, it's his masterpiece work. It's in a dome at the Canadian Museum of History. When you're standing underneath it, you look out and you have a view of the Ottawa River and the Parliament buildings, the promontory where the National Art Gallery is as well. So it has, it has kind of a grand place within the museum and, and within the landscape. When you're on the floor looking at it several stories up in the air, you're kind of amazed by its intricacies and its beauty and its color. It's Alex's opus really, a Denesilin full history from time immemorial to the present day and, and even looking into the future. And how would you say his work has contributed to Indigenous sovereignty? Alex has always been a very outspoken leader in his concept of being the landlord as stewards, as caretakers as persons with a deep connection and responsibility to, quote-unquote, our lands, because the concepts get mixed up in Western notions of ownership, because you can't own land. The, the land owns you, in a way, right? You're part of it. But his nation experienced a, a great land loss when a large chunk of their land was appropriated by the Canadian forces. The idea was that it would be temporarily taken away for wartime use and then when it wasn't needed anymore it was supposed to be given back but it was never given back and it's been attacked uh, using as a weapons testing zone and defiled in that way but yet the land is stronger than that and more beautiful and, and more resilient and still very 
important to Alex. His ideas of sovereignty come from having to stand up and having to take that stance to be himself as a person, to have control over himself. And so that carries over into his ideas of being a steward, being a, a landlord, and for artwork as well. Alex has long advocated for a reinstatement of First Nations landlordship. He says, it's past time to talk about sovereignty. It's now time to act. This is how he communicates his resistance, and it's an important message for this country to hear. And I quote, We know who we are. We know our land. So we are the land, and the land is us. The idea of sovereignty and self-determination, um, he embodies that, and that's such an important thing, not only for Indigenous artists to understand, but for Canadians to understand that Indigenous peoples, Indigenous artists, Alex Janvier, and by extension, people that he loves, that he's part of, Dene Salin, are self-determined, independent people within the context of the country that we call Canada. And they always have been, and they, and they always will be. And that's not a threat. It's a value, and the country hasn't fully realized I was wondering, uh, where do you find creative inspiration? In nature itself, the sky, there's so many var variations of blues. And when the sun comes up, different kind of colors there again. And uh, Canada, from coast to coast, and from the south to the north. We are so fortunate to have a land like we live in. It's a beautiful country, this Canada, from one end to the other one. There's no coloration like there's in Canada. We have a beautiful, colorful country. And all we have to do is look out there and, and enjoy it. I'm glad yeah, we had this interview. And you have a very fancy name like Beaver, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris Beaver sounds like uh, you're a landlord origin, too. I see a lot of the natives are now owning up to their traditional names, you know. Look at all of the Europeans, whatever they, their name is, where they come from and so on, it tells a little bit about them in their names. And so uh, I'm encouraging all of them to do that, to go back to your tradition and uh, become the landlord again. That's a, that's a perfect way to uh, wrap this up. So I'm going to say goodbye. But before I do, is there anything I missed? Is there anything you would like to say before we go? The landlord has spoken. To see the images referred to in this episode, check out the link in the show notes. The Art of Sovereignty is written and hosted by Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk. Produced by Ozzy Michelin and Katie O'Connor. 
Edited by Chris Beaver with assistance from Matthew O'Mara. Lori Few is the executive producer for Digital at TVO. Music by Bedtracks. We'd like to thank the artists and curators who made time to speak with us for the series. Production assistance from Jonathan Hallowell, Nikki Ashworth, and Albert Wisco. Special thanks to the Art Gallery of Peterborough, the Powerplant Gallery, Carleton University, and especially Wanda Nanabush in the Art Gallery of Ontario.